Well, again, it's good to be with you this morning. Um, Can I invite you to open up to John chapter 2? John chapter 2. We're going to jump in feet first today. Why not? Um, And allow God to hopefully just have his way with our hearts and our minds as we hear about Scripture and we hear about his word. And uh, I know you just sat down, but I'd like to stand today and honor the reading of the word of God. Will you stand with me, please? John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Um, This is first miracle, wedding at Cana, really cool stuff. All right, here we go. John chapter 2. Are you ready for the word of God today? All right. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. You may be seated. So here is the first of this incredible sign of Jesus Christ, where, where even more so he is ushering in the messianic ministry and, and helping people to understand who he actually is. This is at Cana. I have a map for you to be able to see so that you can understand where Cana is. Most people know Jerusalem. You see that down there with the star. They know Sea of Galilee. And so it's up there a good bit. Um, it would have been... Um, half a day's wall kind of thing from the Sea of Galilee. And so here they are in Cana, and he's going to this wedding. Now, also we understand that the majority of people during that time frame, a wedding was a big deal. Like for when I got married um, almost 20 years ago now, 19 years ago, um, people were so kind, so generous, they drove from a long way off, but they would come. We had about a 45-minute or 55-minute service. Then we fed everybody a lot of food, and everybody went home just a few hours after it all began. Roughly, that happens with a lot of people. Well, then it didn't last for a few hours. It lasted for days. And it was a big thing to be a part of. And we know that uh, a lot of people, they may only go to one or two weddings, even if that, a year. And it was something that was extended. It was something that had a lot of emphasis on it. Um, And people would really uh, step into it excited about the feast and the party that was to come for days and days. And so this is what is expected. And so here he is in Cana, and he is walking into the situation where there is a 
wedding. And of course, we know already from the reading, he's going to take water, turn it into wine. Very first thing I ask is, why is this the first miracle? Why this? Now, I'm not saying it's not amazing, but why not just start off with, boom, raising Lazarus from the dead? Right? Why is it that this is that first sign that Jesus is starting to orchestrate all that he has really come for? What, what is it behind this? What's the symbolic meaning behind all of it? And we're going to have to walk into some of this today. Now, I do want to make sure that this is bookended with one verse primarily. John chapter 2, verse 11. We already know the primary point of all the signs and all the miracles, all the I am statements in the gospel of John. The primary point is this. Jesus Christ is revealing his glory. The glory of the Father. Our entire life is to be about revealing the glory of God. Right? This was December 22nd. I preached about this, the glory of God. That's the purpose of Jesus. Everything is about the glory of God. Everything is about the glory of God. Allowing Holy Spirit to blow into the cells of every part of our life, have his way with us. It's about the glory of God. So if you're about to enter another week, making sure that you get what you want, recognize that you're living way smaller than God intends for you to live. Everything is about to be the glory of God. That's what everything is about in life. And so here, Jesus Christ, even in his miracles and the signs that we're going to see, we're going to recognize that this is really about the glory of God. It says, and he manifested his glory. And so we're able to see this. We also understand that um, there's so many unique facets to this. Uh, one of the things I think we're going to learn from this, you have the master of ceremonies here. Maybe you've had a party or a wedding or something like that previously, and you had that master of ceremonies, the MC. Right? And the MC really kind of makes the party the party. They're able to kind of read the room and kind of lead it and to guide it. And, okay, this is what we're going to do. Um, and you, get a, you go, maybe you hire a DJ out and you bring them in. Um, and that's something that's important. And they kind of guide the entire festivities. I think that what happens here is Jesus Christ is stepping into the picture. And he's like, listen, I know you think you're cool, but I'm the real MC. I'm master of ceremonies. I'm the one who makes it happen. So um, make sure you recognize that. And we're going to have an opportunity to examine that as well. He is the true bringer of joy. He is the one who's bringing the party. I think it's incredibly sad that so many people have made church a place where they're not coming to expect a festival, a party, because they recognize the glory of God. And Jesus has stepped into the picture and said, I'm bringing a party, a celebration of who my Father is and what He has done for you. So we're able to recognize all of this. So here's this Wedding, we understand that Jesus is showing up there in Cana. Um, and as soon as Jesus, it seems, is showing up, it tells us Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And then it just jumps in to a significant problem. A significant problem. Now, before I get into that problem, 
I, I want to help you understand as well the culture that, was, that existed during this time. This culture was a shame culture, meaning there were certain things that you must do and that you must not do, and if any of those things were not done or they were done inappropriately, then enormous amounts of shame would have been heaped upon not only you, but also your family, all right? So we can't fully, even though I'm telling you this, we can't fully grasp it because we don't live in a shame culture. We live in a culture where none of us really do anything wrong, right? I mean, that's kind of how we look at it. And yet they lived in a culture of shame where one thing that you did not do is allow the wine to run out. You did not do that. That's like showing up at a small church in the south without a casserole dish. You just don't do it. Right? You just don't do it. It's just automatic. It's like living up north here. One of the things you automatically do, you walk into somebody's house, what do you do? Take your shoes off. Right? I've walked into some of your houses before, and I, just, I don't take my shoes off, and I just get this look, and I get this. And I take my shoes off, right? There's, it's a cultural thing. That's what I'm trying to get in your mind. There's a cultural impact with it, and it's kind of what you do and don't do. And there, the shame culture was so great. And the one thing you don't do is run out of wine. Jesus shows up, and the very first thing it says is this, and when the wine ran out, oh, no. Horrific way to begin a marriage, a horrible way to begin a marriage. When the wine ran out, and of course then the mother, the mother of Jesus steps in and says, hey, they have no wine. Wow. Right away, and, and then it, it continues and says the following. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So here's Jesus Imagine all that's happening and taking place. He knows that he's about to be stepping in to a whole new... As soon as he starts with these signs and these miracles, Messianic ministry, as soon as this starts, as soon as this, what he knows is about to occur, takes place, his whole life is about to change. Right? Everything's about to alter. It's no more like, hey, what's this guy talking about over here? And yes, we know you got this guy over here, John the Baptist, who's come and he's speaking about some Messiah, that's the one that's been prophesied, but we don't, we're not sure if he's, he's correct or not. And Jesus knows that as soon as he starts performing these signs and these miracles, everything, right? We've got to wake up to that. Everything starts to alter. Tonight, we had this little thing going on called the Super Bowl. Whatever of these quarterbacks wins the Super Bowl with the team, his life is going to change. He knows right away. Well, that's nothing compared to what was about to start here. The names of tonight will be forgotten. The name of Jesus Christ will always be glorified. And so that's going through his mind. What also is going through his mind is here's this young couple who's beginning their marriage in the most shameful way that you can imagine. And we know that one of the traits of Jesus Christ is one that we also need to be portraying if we really have a love for him, and that's one of compassion. And you know that his heart's going out to these people because they're without the very thing that they need to have right now. It's an amazing story. 
Jesus responds um, right after his mother jumps into the picture. And Jesus' Jesus's reference to his mother, it says, woman. Now, I've heard a lot of sermons. I've read a lot of scholars. And there are some who think that this is this crass, like calling her out. I do not read that at all. You need to know that. And I've heard a lot of smart people preach that too. I'm just simply telling you that they're wrong. Um, I truly believe he, this is something that was endearing. I do not think that the Son of God was embarrassing his mother. Culturally for us today, 2,000 years later, the way that we speak and the way that we use these, this language, we would go, oh, I can't believe he just did that. Like, right? My mom is like all of four foot ten, and if I said woman to her, I would be done. <laughs> Amen, men? Amen? But that's not what's taking place here. And I just read, like, literally what's going through my mind is my mom's probably watching this, and she's probably 4'11", so I apologize. Because I will get a phone call this afternoon, I guarantee it. I'm telling you, I'm going to get a phone call. Blast it. Technology today. Woman, what does this have to do with me? Again, I don't think that this is something that was harsh. I think it was endearing. And he says, what does this have to do with me? Now, even in his questions that he's presenting to his mom right then, he's about to show to us all that's going on in his own life and the significance of this passage for us today. Remember, this is the word of God. It is timeless. It is endless. It will never change. It will never alter. It means just as much for us today as it did 100 years ago or 2,000 years ago. It is the perfect word of God. And he's about to just open it up, even with his questions, to power. You know, we always speak about Jesus and all the questions and how well, you know, the Pharisees and the different religious, religious leaders would come to him and start asking him questions. And he would turn back with the question. And so beautifully and articulately, he would then present that. Well, right away, even at this, the beginning of the Messianic ministry, he's asking a question. What does this have to do with me? This phrase is used only five other times in the New Testament. And every time it's spoken by a demon to Jesus. What does this have to do with me? So think about the significance of this. It's only used five other times in the New Testament. And every time it's from a demon to Jesus saying, what's this have to do with me, right? It's when someone was possessed and they would say even, oh no, here comes Jesus. And they would recognize who he is. And Jesus even makes this statement of, you know what? Mom, my, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Now this is big. My hour has not yet come. And he's referring to the hour that will be his death when he will die for sinners. I mentioned that this culture was a culture of what? Shame. 
So I want you to start painting this picture in your own mind and understanding that even though that they lived in this culture of shame, one of the things he's letting them know, my hour has not yet come. It's not time. I know that I'm about to. It's coming in the near future. My hour will come where I will bear all of the shame of all of humanity. My hour has not come. And he's looking at this and going, here's this individual. Here's this couple who's starting their marriage in complete humiliation and complete shame. And he's going, my hour has not come. It's not time for me to bear the shame. But guess what he's going to do? He's going to take our shame so that we can live in victory. That's what's happening here. It is so much more than water to wine. It's shame to freedom. My hour has not yet come. To be the purification for sins, right? He's he's looking at his mom and in many ways he's saying, Mom, it's not time for me to die yet. And he knew the importance of the Father's will and the Father's timing. I'll give you a few examples of this same phraseology being used. John 7.30, it says, this is John 7.30, says, So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him. Why? Why did they not? Because his hour had not yet come. Another is John 8.20, right after this. No one arrested him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. We see it again a couple of different times in John chapter 12, right? Where we, we see it once again. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And this is right after it states the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Like we know that the hour, the timing of the Father is the perfect will of the Father, the perfect timing. And Jesus is calling out to his mom, don't you know my hour hasn't come This shame that they are experiencing right now is nothing compared to what I'm going to have to do in order to remove that shame. Don't you know? Jesus' hour was the hour of his death when the Lamb of God would take away the sin of the world. And this would be the ultimate purification. It's interesting that here, one of the things that we see here in this very passage in John chapter 2 is it says, now there were, there were six stone water jars there, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. So do the math. If there's six, a minimum of 20 gallons, at least 120 gallons of wine right then. And I don't know if you're a drinker of wine at all, but I would love to taste some wine that Jesus himself said boom to. You know that's good stuff. And you got at least 120 gallons here, right? This isn't the cheap stuff. Son of God, here you go. At least 120 gallons that we see right here coming from these very jars that we know was typically used for these Jewish rites of purification. We know that because it tells us in the scripture. And now he's going, no, don't you understand that what I'm going to do when my hour really does come, I'm going to remove and I'm going to not even really remove. He's going to be the substitute, substitutionary atonement. He's going to be the substitute for that very thing for us. And he knew that in order to remove the shame, not only that was to come 
to this bride and to this groom. But to remove the shame of sin from all of us, he knew that he would have to die. We, guys, this is significant, even primarily for this groom. Uh, we, we get it wrong. Like today, it's just it's very different, right? We know that a wedding today is primarily, I hope that you say this, is about worshiping Jesus. Amen? If you're a follower of Jesus, primary subject is who? Go ahead, you can answer. Jesus. But we struggle with that because we grow up in today's culture and we really make it about who? The bride. Even in this culture, it was not about the bride. If anything, it would have been more groomed than bride. Yeah, I'm, I'm speaking properly. I know we can't fathom that. Anything we do as a follower of Jesus is never about us. It's about Jesus. And that includes our weddings. I'm saying this because right now you're all going, well, I'm not going to have him perform my ceremony. I just freed up a lot of weekends. It's not about you. It's about the glory and the manifestation of the glory of God being revealed to the rest of the world. Your purpose of living as a follower of Jesus Christ is to draw no attention to self, is to draw attention to Jesus. And that's in the most significant of occasions. And here it's at a wedding. And so he knows what he's going to have to do. And he knows that as soon as he does this, everything's about to get a lot bigger. And all the different people in his life who are going to all come to him and go, I want more. I want some of that. Come on. What is going on here? And he knows that everything's about to shift because they're going to look at this. And in the midst of this, you know what he's doing? He's controlling nature. He's taking water. He's turning it into wine. And they're going to go, oh, my goodness, can you see what this guy can do? Wow. You know what he can do? He can fill the cells of your marriage. Do you believe that God can take your marriage and move it to a place of such surrender and such sacrifice that God uses it to reach thousands upon thousands of people all in the name of Jesus Christ? Yes or no? Well, then get ready for it. Get ready for that. And so we see this unfolding before us. Here's one of the things, and I, I, I want to kind of summarize a lot of what's taken place here in this passage by, by three statements, three different calls that we have. One of the first things that we discover in this passage, and we see it over and over again, is we see a call to obedience. If you would, write that down. You're going to go, well, where's the call to obedience? It says, whatever he says, do it. Verse, verse 5 John chapter 2, he says, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Right away, there's instruction, and they're expected to obey the instruction. We find it again in verse 7, because he says, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. They didn't go, well, why is that? And so often, you ever found that, like someone asks you to do something, even if it's very, very gracious in spirit, and you go, well, Why? Right? Automatically, if you have to question serving someone else every time they ask you to be a helper, I'm going to ask you to examine your heart. I 
I have this conversation continually with my kids. If I say, hey, would you help go do such and such? And they go, why me? Like, as soon as they say, why me? I'm going to go, wow, okay, we, we need, one, we need some prayer time. And we need to talk about the condition of your heart. Because right now, you're living a life for self and not for Jesus. And it's the same with us as adults. Sometimes we need to examine our own heart. When someone says, hey, go do this, do we automatically go, well, why me? Or why should I have to do that? And yet Jesus is very clearly saying, I want you to go do this. And so the servants, because they are servants and we are slaves, right, a doulos of Jesus Christ, immediately it says they went and they filled them up. They didn't have to question it. They did it because Christ asked for them, and they didn't even recognize who it was. It was their place to be able to do it. It is my place as a follower of Jesus Christ to submit to anything that Jesus Christ asked me to do and to do it with a glad heart because I know his will is sovereign. And so there's this call to obedience of recognizing the authority that he has in our life. You see, if somebody's asking you to simply serve and you automatically question that no matter what, no matter what, one of the things that you have to examine is who has most authority in your life. And so there's a call to obedience. As Jesus Christ is coming in, he's initiating this messianic era that he is, he's bringing about. He's speaking from a, the well-known Jewish tradition of making sure that you have wine at the banquet. There was always wine expected at the Messianic banquet. You see this in the Old Testament. We see it in Numbers chapter 13, Joel chapter 3, Amos chapter 9, other places as well. There was an expectation for wine at the Messianic banquet that was to come, and now he's ushering this in. There's so many layers here in this passage. And we see it over and over. So there's a call to obedience. Another thing, though, that we have is there's a call to, this is wonderful, there's a call to abundance. There's a call to abundance. I told you, I mean, think about it. Here's Jesus Christ, minimum, 120 gallons. Here he comes, steps into the pitcher. He's taking this water, turning it into wine, and you know it's the good stuff. And so many of us, even as believers today, what I'm learning more and more is that we're drinking the cheap stuff. Now, I'm not going all alcoholic kind of thing. I'm not speaking about that. So I, want, I do want to make sure you understand this. What I'm saying is just, I want you to live in the illustration of we're living off of the cheap box wine. And Jesus is going, I've got the perfect stuff and you're not even partaking of it. You're living so small when I have so much more for you. There is a call to abundance. This is the best party ever here. Why? Because he just took this man's humiliation. This is what Jesus does in this passage. Jesus took a man's humiliation and turned it into a triumph. That's what he did. He would have had shame for years to come, literally. I know, again, culturally, we don't understand that. But this shame that he would have experienced, now people are walking away going, Wow, I've never been to a wedding like that before. That's called living in the abundance of what God has in store for his people and his church. It's what I kept telling the elders this weekend, and God has convicted me and he's burdened me. I am so blessed to serve alongside of the leaders of this church. I am incredibly overwhelmed to have the privilege of serving in this place. 
But simply, simply put, we, mean, we need to understand this. We're a health, God's, God's given us health. God's given us unity, which is amazing. It doesn't mean it's necessarily a biblical revival. I don't want to do better than most. I want to be a part of a movement of God that shakes the earth. And it starts with each one of us. And it starts with our marriages. It starts in our homes. Will you pray? Will you get on your knees together and ask God to fill your homes with that type of movement, with the blowing of the Holy Spirit coming into your own heart so that you release the bitterness in your heart? Some of you are so bitter, you can't even imagine that God has something more for you. And you're so angry and it's pent up in your life. And what I'm telling you is he is a God of abundance. He's a God of abundance. Here he is taking a man's humiliation and turning it into a triumph. He desires to do the same thing in your life. The same thing. And you may be thinking, Pastor, if you only knew my story, you wouldn't be saying that. No, what I'm telling you, it doesn't matter what your story is. God can redeem anyone from anything at any time. Amen. Isn't that a story of abundance? A lot of what Jesus was doing, it even represented a need that couldn't be met in any other way. Only God, only Jesus could have met the need that they had that day. And so I I hope that you're not looking for that fulfillment somewhere else because it's only found in one place. It's only found in one place. And so here we come. And we recognize that there's a call to obedience. There's a call to abundance. Jesus has come to make right what only he can make right. (laughs) We see it over and over again. That part of what I believe that Jesus is doing here is he's saying, I have all of this for you. Don't you recognize it's not just the wine. Don't you recognize all I have to give to you? And you're not participating. You're standing from afar and you're looking at, oh, well, maybe God will do this or maybe God will do this. And yet, yet Christ is going, I've got so much more. You really think that your life is about being so small? Don't you know the feast that I actually have for you? Don't you understand the abundance that I have for you? And no, I'm not speaking monetarily. I'm talking about what you can do to understand peace and salvation and then to be a part of something bigger than you can ever imagine, which is the kingdom of God. So there's this call to obedience. There's a call to abundance. But what we also see here is there's a call to faith. There's a call to faith. There's a call to belief. Now, I told you at the very beginning, the, the, the one verse I went ahead and called out again at the very beginning was uh, of John chapter 2, verse 11, because this is the primary kicker of this passage. It tells us in verse 11, it says, This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Let 
Maybe this is one way to think about it. Are you even willing to allow, to invite, like right now internally, are you willing to say, God, blow Holy Spirit in my life no matter what that means? Like, are we, are we courageous enough to speak such words? Holy Spirit, whatever you desire, whatever you want, and if you want to use my marriage, if you want to redirect my career and I go and do something completely different, if you want me to go and, and partner with this church and launching another church, if you want me to give up everything I have, if you want me to share with my neighbor today about Jesus Christ, well, we willing to pray that prayer of Holy Spirit, blow into my life in such a radical manner that it fills the cell of my marriage, of my friendships, of my relationships, and some of you going, some of you have a greater desire for things of the world than you do of God. Are you willing to pray, God, rip out anything in my life? Listen to this. Rip out anything in my life that has greater importance than you. Remove it. I'd rather, I'd rather you remove it than allow it to remain. And then not get angry at God later on when he helps that happen. And you're like, well, I can't believe God took this. And he's going to, you prayed for it. What are you talking about? You said you wanted for me to blow into your life and to do a movement and to have a movement of abundance in a way that you've never dreamed or imagined before. You were living in a place of shame. I replaced that shame with fulfillment that is of perfection because it's of my blood and my life. And now you want to complain about it? Don't we understand that in the name of Jesus Christ, he defeats our shame? Jesus conquers your shame. He conquers your sin and he replaces it with his glory. Are we willing to pray such fantastic, audacious prayers? God, no matter what we have already experienced of you, there's already, there's always more to experience of you. And so I'm asking that you help us to understand the enormity of the call to obedience. And I ask that you help us to understand the, the beauty of a call to abundance. But God, more than anything, I pray that we respond to the call of faith. It says, and the disciples believed. May we have a deep faith, God, in your power. May we have deep understanding that you have removed the shame of our life and replaced it with your glory.
God, may the courage to respond to you well up within us. In Christ's name, amen. Would you stand with us as we respond?